You're listening to the Bethel University Chapel Podcast, recorded from the Everstwar Chapel Fine Arts Center in Mishawaka, Indiana. Thanks for listening. All right, if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 4. I'm going to pray in a minute. Remember, guys, we're talking about Jesus being the difference. Uh, the Jesus difference is what I called sort of all five uh, of the episodes that we're doing together. G- the Jesus difference. And so this morning we talked about Jesus and my mental health. Now Jesus and my love life. And... Um, I'm going to talk about a lot of different things. You know, it's funny. I'm an ER doctor by, so I trained in pediatrics. Then I did pediatric ER. And when you meet people who specialize in medicine, you always, uh, you kind of get their personality. I'm a lot more ER than I am pediatrics. You probably got a feel for that. I'm very, like, intense and fast and, you know, sort of, you're like, what did she just say? You know, like, no, that's not what happens in the ER. But in essence, um, we're very comfortable in the ER talking about uncomfortable things. And so some things I'm going to talk about today probably are going to be uncomfortable, but in a good way. And I found it's interesting because our culture is very comfortable talking about uncomfortable things, but we're not comfortable talking about uncomfortable things in the church. And I, I can't understand that because, like, it's sort of like, like, I feel like sometimes, remember when you were growing up and you would be watching a movie and, like, your mom would walk in and you'd be, like, changing the channel, like, like you're protecting them from something. Like, sometimes it feels like that at church, almost like we, you know, we just sort of don't want people to know what's really happening. But in real life, like, everyone's talking about everything. And so I don't understand it because if we don't put light on some of those things, then we never really understand a biblical perspective about them. And I think our love life is, is some of that. But, but I'm going to peel back, and I'm not here to give dating advice. I've been engaged twice, never married, so clearly I am not your go-to for dating advice, <laughs> but, but, but that's okay, because what I want to talk about is deeper than that, and, and I called, uh, this, I kind of like hemmed and hawed about how to get to the title of this, so I called it Jesus and my love life, but what I want to hone in on uh, is, uh, and I'll, let me backtrack a bit, this morning, just to give you some sort of how my brain thinks, um, I had talked about Jesus and my mental health, but specifically when anxiety, when my anxiety is more than I can handle. And you're going to see that theme of superlatives come up. This one, when I want to focus on love, what I want to really hit on is when addiction is tighter than I can break. All right, see the superlative? If you're not English majors, that's okay. You guys can ask the business majors. They'll know what that means. <laughs> Who is making the most money? That's a superlative. No, I'm just teasing. But, but, but when addiction is tighter than I can break, you're going to start seeing in every session sort of an angle to what I want to hone in on. You know, what we, you might be thinking, why? You're talking about love. Like, I, I just came to understand, like, how do I become the person that is going to be able to marry the right person? I'm in Christian school, et cetera. Why are we talking about addiction? Because I think we have this idea in the church that there are people sitting in the corner over there who are addicted to something. And yet the rest of us are here, and we're just fine. Like, we're not, you know, we're not in Celebrate Recovery. We're not in AA. Therefore, we're not addicted. And I think we miss it because we're all addicted to something. And the question to pose ourselves tonight is, is Jesus enough to meet us in our places of addiction? And, and I want to, before I start, just to pray real quick. I know we've prayed a couple of times today. And the reason we pray, I think also sometimes when we come to church, and, and, and I, I think the exception is when we sing. We, we have a very strong awareness of Christ. But often in our Christian life, or at least I've been guilty of that, I kind of think of God sometimes as, okay, Jesus, who lived way back 2,000 years ago, right? I mean, we, can, we understand there's this Jesus person who's God. We don't understand how that works out, but, but we, can, we kind of have a tangible sense of, oh, yeah, Jesus lived back then. He was with the disciples in the boat. And then we think of God up in heaven. You know, so there's sort of this sense of, like, God back there or out there. But we miss the fact that God is right here, right now. 
And I think this is really, really critical. And in fact, I think that is the most formative spiritual thing that happens to us in life, is that God is putting us in a place of awareness of his constant presence. Now, he's present everywhere because he's omnipresent, so, but he's present also in the sense that he lives in us. If you're a follower of Jesus, the promise is that he comes and lives in you. That's not true for those of you who might be here who have not put your trust in Christ. It's not, we're not being, like, we're not like, oh, you're over there on that side, we're over here. No, it's just a reality of scripture teaches that if you receive Christ, he comes and makes your heart his home. Now, that might be like, well, you're being so elitist. No, it's actually a total takeover. It's not elitism at all. It's actually like you die to self. You're no longer in control. But, but, but that's so hard for the American mind to understand, isn't it? Because we're in control of everything. Our whole point in the American life, I've been here since I was 15 in the United States, and I think a lot more American than I do Lebanese. Like our whole, by the way, Lebanese think that along that line too, that we're not typical Arabs. It's all about empowerment and being in control. And, and the idea that like, what? Like you don't have a mind of your own? Like now God's mind is in you? Like you can't think for yourself? Yeah, that's it. Wait, 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 does that mean like your body is not your own? Like now someone, like that's what the Bible teaches. Your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like, you are no longer your own. These very words were used by the Apostle Paul. Like, it's so radically counterintuitive to us and so crazy. Like, like we nod our heads. I grew up hearing this stuff. Like, I understand that here, but practically how that plays out in our life is crazy. And nowhere do we see it more than in our love life. We see it a little, and our money would be a, a close second, by the way. We are all really tight about our money, right? And you might think now in your 18 to 25, you're like, I don't have any money. Like, God, you can have it all. Here's my 25 cents, right? <laughs> but wait till you get your first real paycheck or, or a raise or you whatever. Maybe some of you will go on to write books and get big deals on books. However it is, the more you have, the tighter you get about it. I don't understand that. But more so, so money's easy, tangible to understand. Plus, we're all a lot more comfortable talking about money than we are talking about our love life. Jesus was comfortable with the uncomfortable. In John chapter 4, we see him entering into the life of a person that was the least of these. You know, John 4 is the story of the woman at the well. And in John 4, he not only goes to a town that was like Peoria. Just kidding. <laughs> Peoria. Get it? From before? Anyway, you guys are like... It was like, like, nobody wants to go to Peoria. I mean, no offense. Like, you go to, you know, people are always like, like, I'll ask people all the time, like, where are you from? What state are you from? And ev inevitably, anyone who's from Illinois says, I'm from Chicago. Like, you know, Illinois, like, there's not, nowhere else. And this is, so Samaria is like that. Like, it's like the place that no one wants to go. But it was even, it carried a heavier burden in that they looked upon them as a lesser than. I'm Lebanese, and in Lebanon, the Syrians are less than. We, we minister to the Syrians, where I, I do my ministry now, with Syrian refugees and with the Lebanese. Ironically, Lebanon has taken a big hit in their life and, and the way that, that, that life has hit the Lebanese people. But, but there's, we have that here in our country. I think it's just easier to pick on another country rather than starting to say, oh, the racism issue or the this issue or the that issue. The reality is that there's someone that comes to your mind when you think of someone who is less than. The Samaritan for the Jews were less van. They were, you avoided going there. Nobody wanted to drive through Peoria. And yet Jesus was comfortable with the uncomfortable. So that's one layer of discomfort that he entered in. But more than that, we're going to see as I read the verses in a minute, that he didn't just pick Samaria, but he also picked a Samaritan 
woman, which was also less than. This is 2023, and we watch movies about feminism and about women becoming stronger and the rights of women, and we can't even fathom. I'm 50 now, and I can't even fathom, so I can't imagine how the woman here can even fathom a world where women didn't have a voice. All right, this is in the United States now, 2023. Now take it back 2,000 years to the middle stinking east where women still don't have voices. But this is now 2,000 years ago. So imagine now you're in Samaria and now you've got a woman. Jesus was comfortable with the uncomfortable. But not only that, but of all the women that he could have picked, he picks the one with so much sexual baggage that she can't even show herself when all the other people in the town show up. You know that book, The Scarlet Letter, that you all read back in whenever, sixth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, whenever. Is it still a mandatory reading? It was when I was in high school. No? You've moved on, right? <laughs> now it's like The Hobbit or, or Harry Potter. It's probably Harry Potter. It has to be. I don't know. I mean, but we used to read the Scarlet Letter. It was a story, but it was like, like, like nobody wanted to be next to Hester Prynne, right? And so the, the Samaritan woman is a woman who we're going to find out in a minute in Scripture tells us that she had been with five men. So I want to read a few verses, and let's do this before I read them. Just, God, would you please continue to just shed light on what you're trying to do in us tonight? But I haven't even, I haven't even started talking about addiction. I'm just setting the stage of spiritual realities and cultural realities and getting us all on the same page so that your spirit can dig deep in us and do a work that we desperately need. Oh God, what would it look like if we were all free? If we all found our satisfaction in you? Those of us who call ourselves Christians, if we, starting with us, forget those who don't recognize you yet as God. Lord, you're doing a work in them. I, I praise you for it. But God, for us who recognize you as Savior, Lord, until we get to the place where we are fully satisfied in you, we can sing as many songs as we sing, and yet we will always wrestle. Would you bring us to a point of surrender in all areas? Would you be indeed glorified in us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. And so in John chapter 4, let me read you the story as, as the Bible writes it. And so there's a little back story, which is the competition between Jesus and John that the people perceived. Jesus was never in competition with John. John wasn't in competition with Jesus. In fact, John said he's, he must increase so that I might, I might decrease. But the setting is that it says when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, he didn't have to. If you've grown up in church, you've heard sermons on this, he could have gone another way. In fact, most people went another way. It says he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sishar, maybe I said it wrong, but near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, so now it's like the middle of the day. It's hot, and he goes and sits by this well, and it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It says in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, and by the way, it says in parentheses, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
Now, he could have gone with them. He could have, you guys, you guys all hang out. Like, most naturally, what would have, if there were 12 of us, 13 with Jesus, we would have been like, half of you guys go get food, and then the half of you stay with Jesus. Like, naturally, we would have done that. But Jesus knows what's going to happen. And so he's setting the stage to where he can actually have a conversation with someone about something that matters. Does Jesus make a difference in the things that matter the most to us? Well, we're going to see a pattern where Jesus intentionally weaves life so that he has this particular interaction on this particular day with this particular woman. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The Bible says it a lot more concisely than I just explained it, but that was the gist of it. It says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, so far, so good, right? This is polite conversation. Talking about the weather, you go to the doctor, you're like, I have a bellyache, my head hurts, everything's fine. It's still very much, you're not at the point where the doctor's like, okay, take your clothes off, now I gotta look at that rash, right? It's coming though, it's coming and you feel it. And so here it is, it says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And by the way, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. The entire encounter is like riveting to me because I'm a woman in 2023 and like if I walk up to a well, I mean, I don't care if it's middle of the day or middle of the night, and I see a guy stalking like there. Like, I would be like, I'm not coming here. I mean, like, she doesn't know who Jesus is yet, right? I mean, think about it. Everyone in church world always thinks like, oh, my gosh, Jesus talked to this married woman. But, like, there's a lot of stuff going on if you really think about it. It's, you know, I get that Jesus was non-threatening because he's Jesus. We think of him as Jesus. But, like, for a woman who doesn't know who he is to have this conversation with him, and now imagine how would you have responded if he says to her, well, go get your husband. Like, whoa wait, wait, we were talking about the weather in Peoria, and now you're talking about, about, about my, my love life? She says to him, I have no husband. And here it is. He says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Can you, can you think about that for a minute? Like, like, it's one thing for me to tell you I've been engaged twice and I'm not married, but imagine we're having a conversation, I don't even know you, and, and you start to psychoanalyze me. Think about that for a minute. But there's something divine happening in this moment. Jesus is not like us. Like, he's man, but he's God. So he can talk to her at a level that what we do in the church is that we block Jesus off these conversations. We think he's like the, our mom watching the bad movie, as if your parents don't know what sex is, right? As if, I mean, I was growing up. It was like, I'm going to protect them from the R-rated content. But how did you think you came out of what? <laughs> like, did they just open the oven and get you? Like, they know at least that much. Like, even the weirdest parents, like, have the basic knowledge, right? 
It has to have happened. That's how we treat Jesus. But he kind of just deletes all that and just gets right to where it, the problem is. He's not satisfied talking to us about the weather. He knows something so intrinsically true, which is that we are all addicted to something because we're looking deeply for satisfaction. You might be sitting here going, I'm not addicted to anything. I haven't had an alcohol drink in my whole life, or I've never smoked a joint. I've never taken a, a pill of anything. We're not, I'm not talking about that kind of addiction. I'm talking about all kinds of addiction. I started making a list today of some of the things that we're addicted to. And, you know, there's the usual substance abuse. And, you know, back in my era, meth was more, you know, common. Now people have graduated. I mean, pot isn't even, like, you can even get it. Like, it's, it's not even illegal. Like, I have grandmas who are chewing CBD like it's going out of style. Like, yeah, it's, like, it's, like what, what, it's not even a thing anymore, right? And even then you think about, like, people are talking, the big conversation about Gen Zs now is that y'all aren't sexually active. There was, an edit, there was actually an editorial that just came out in the New York Times like two weeks ago, and I subscribed to the Times because of Wordle. I don't read the Times or any other <laughs> newspaper, but when Wordle dropped, and then they went, so now I subscribe. So I get these little articles, and it's fascinating. But, but the premise of the article is, like, people need to have more sex because people aren't. But just because, <laughs> that's good. Is that Kenya back there? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, you, John. But listen, I'm just teasing. I'm telling you guys, this is like a dating relationship. We're already like, we're, we're together now. Like, you're stuck with me. I'm, I'm part of Bethel now. But no, listen, the, the <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Addictions, let's go back to addictions. Um, just because you're not having more sex doesn't mean you're healthier. See, we just think, oh my gosh, we're so Gen, Gen Z, they're so socially responsible, they're not into that. But listen, we've substituted it with other addictions because addiction is about satisfaction. That's it. So you, see, you can't be addicted to meth. I mean, that gets a hold of your body where chemically you can't you know, control it as much. But on the other hand, you might say, can you really control an addiction to the internet? Because the way I see it, we really can't control it as much as we think we can. I wake up at 2 in the morning sometimes, first thing I do is grab the phone. It's because it's sitting right there. Unless I physically put it in another room, it's always there. You look at statistics of Gen uh, Zs, and, and, and you spend, apparently more than half of you spend more than four hours on social media a day. I, I think that's conservative, compared to 25% of the natural population who spends more than four hours of social media. So the rest of us spend more than four hours, but half of you, we are like only a quarter of us do, but you guys, half of you do, okay? That's just social media addiction. Like, we, we all recognize that. Like, what's the big deal about that? Like, you're looking at your TikTok or Snapchat or whatever it is. TikTok is going to be apparently not in existence anymore. I don't know. I'm not on TikTok. But, but nonetheless, I'm one of those, like, I'm still on Facebook. Like, you guys are like, face what? You know, I'm, I'm also on Instagram though, and Twitter. So don't worry, I'm not that bad. But, but still, you know, I, I, mean, I got to act my age also, so I can't get rid of Facebook. And, and I'll explain what it is later. Most of you are like, okay, I don't, I don't get that. But, 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 but that's, that's just one aspect of addiction. That's respectable. I mean, big deal. Everybody has a phone. Guys are checking it right now. Check it. Good. Go check out my TikTok. I have an account. I just don't use it. The point is, you start thinking about addictions. What are we addicted to on social media? We're addicted to affirmation. Why do we like likes? I mean, why does everybody talk about likes? Because we're addicted to that. We want to be satisfied. And part of our satisfaction comes from knowing that I'm doing better than you are. You ever look on social media and see your ex dating somebody and you're like, dude, she, he left me for her? 
like, I'm doing, I'm doing just fine, right? Like, good riddance, right? I mean, I mean you, you, we do this all the time. You see their vacation, and you're like, really? I got to see an alligator on my vacation. Like, what'd they do? And you feel good in that moment. Why? Because we're satisfied by knowing that we're okay. And so we look for those sorts of things. But that's not an addiction. How is it not? We're on it all the time. The more likes, the happier we are. Why? Not because we want likes. Not because we I don't even know the likes, right? You can pay people to like your stuff. The point is, we feel good. We're addicted to that feeling. We're addicted to stuff. We're addicted to performance. Look what I did. Guys are doing it all the time. They show you what they do skateboarding, jumping off cliffs, all sorts of things. We're, you name it, we're addicted to it. We're addicted to food. Do you know how many lifestyle accounts there are? Everybody has a lifestyle account. It's like crazy. We're addicted to home rehab. You name it, we have it. But one of the most dangerous addictions, and you know we're going there because we're talking about our love life, is addiction to sex. You don't need to have sex with a human to be addicted to sex. It's called porn. Uh-oh, I forgot the memo. You're supposed to split up. Girls in one room, guys in the other. <laughs> Pass a flower around. Let's see what we can do by the end. Like, get the picture. Look, we don't. We're so far. Fast forward 20, 30, 40 years. We're not where we used to be in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. We can talk about things now because the reality is that we're all dealing with it in some form or fashion because it no longer has to be sought out out there. Now it's here. It's here. Have you ever tried putting content restrictions on your phones? It lasts like an hour. Until you go to like Netflix and you're trying to watch a show and you can't access it. Or if you're a doctor, you're trying to put in treatment for herpes. I can't access it because there's content restrictions. Now what do I do? I can't remember the code because I got my sister involved. Now my sister doesn't. Now I got to restore the phone. Like, it's crazy. The motive, the, the desire's there. The flesh is weak, but the desire's there. But we're still victims of addictions to things that will make us feel better in the moment. That's what addiction is. The woman at the well was addicted to love. I don't think it was addiction to sex per se. I mean, I grew up thinking the, the insinuation was always that she was a whore of some kind. People used to use that term sometimes in describing her. But you don't really get that impression when you read the story. She was just married five times, which, I mean, you could argue that someone who's been married five times has some emotional baggage, right? But, I mean, whatever it is, there's something that led her to have to be in a relationship. We all know people like that. They can't be single. It, and it's not that it's better to be in a relationship or out of a relationship. That's not the point. The point is why, what is the thing that is driving you to constantly have to be in a relationship? What is the thing that is driving you to have to go to those sites or, or to read the material or to watch the movies or whatever? And you're like, well, it's not a big deal. Why are you making it such a big deal? Well, because it is. Here's some statistics. That's why I had my phone, by the way. I don't carry my phone all the time. I can't read my handwriting anymore, so I have to take pictures of things I've typed. <laughs> so this is about Christians. This is about Christians. Why do I bring up porn in this setting? Because about half of Americans, 18 to 30, uh, half of Amer uh, who are practicing Christians. So, so ima imagine this room, we're all practicing Christians. You, you have to be, if you come to Bethel, you might not be a believing Christian, but you're practicing to a certain degree. About half of you, 18 to 30, actively seek out porn at some point in a given year. Okay, maybe that's a blip on your record, no big. One-fifth 20% of practicing Christians, 18 to 24, seek out porn weekly. One-fifth. Look at the row, five people. 
five people, five people, ten people here. Pick out one and two. You know, just go down the row weekly. I, I, I'm not judging you. I'm just making the point that, in fact, listen, you don't hear judgment in Jesus' interaction with the woman. In fact, in a minute, you're going to see him inviting her into more because he's willing to actually talk about it as opposed to what we've done in the church, which is just to ignore it like the elephant in the room and then scratch our heads when we see leader after leader falling, one after the next going, man, how did Ravi Zacharias go live this life? How did he do that? Well, maybe because nobody's talked about this stuff. One out of five of you, look at your row, one of you is seeking porn out weekly because you long for something you can't name. It's never about sex. It's about a deeper need. You might not have even figured out what that deeper need is, but there's something needy in your soul that says, man, it almost feels good to feel bad about something because you can't handle the bad that is in your life that is driving you to that. Oh, there's more statistics. Put my phone away. Not quite yet. Done. Here's more. Any of you want to be pastors? Over one in five youth pastors, this is according to Barna, currently struggle, quote-unquote is their word, with porn use. One in five of youth pastors. Over 94% of youth pastors and 92% of senior pastors believe that porn is a bigger problem for the church now than it was 20 years ago. Okay, the geniuses who are pastors these days. Here, here's, here's about women. See, we, we've always thought porn is a men problem. Women, 13%, only 13% of Christian women on statistics, when they've done surveys, only 13% say they never watch porn. Only 13% say they never watch porn. 15% of Christian women, Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. Oh, I'm done with the phone. We're addicted. We're all addicted to something, food. We eat too much. We find our solace in food. You thought I was just going to be talking about sex addiction, huh? Because we think addiction, we think man, drugs, alcohol, and sex. What about food? Hey, what about exercise? And by the way, not just overeating, going back, rewinding for a second to food, not just overeating, but undereating, restricting, binging, all forms of addiction rooted in dissatisfaction and the need to control something. And so for the woman at the well, she went from man to man because she was longing for her thirst to be quenched. Listen, you will never overcome addiction until you understand the pain that has led you there. You have to do the work. It will come back to haunt you. By the way, if you are stuck in sexual addiction pattern, which the likelihood many of you in this room are based on statistics, it will not get better when you get married and have actual sex. Married people constantly end in divorce and in mishaps in marriages because one or two, one or the other of the marriage partners, if not both, are stuck in patterns of sexual sin that started before they got married. I have friends who tell me their stories regularly now. 
because I talk about this stuff more. Actually, I wrote a book that's going to be coming out in the fall about this that's still very much under wraps. We're just now getting the work done. And I'm telling you guys, I'm hearing more and more stories from people who think, man, I used to think that. I used to think, man, it's okay. I can struggle with some of this stuff. You know, the big M word. Like, oh, I can struggle with it because someday I'll get married and all that will be behind me. But listen, married people struggle sexually all the time. It's why so many Christians get divorced. Do the work now. Now is the day. Now, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to say, man, what is it that's leading me to a pattern of addiction in my life? You don't even need a therapist to do it. You need this book, this word of God. You need the spirit of God. You need to be surrounded by people who love you. You need a savior who comes up to you in the middle of the day when you're trying to avoid everyone in the town who says, I'm willing to come to Samaria to talk to a woman who is known in the town to be sexually loose because she matters. Your life matters. God isn't disgusted by your behavior. God leans into us. We don't have to protect him from coming in the room like, God, if you only knew what I was doing. He already knows and he's still here. And he invites you, beckons you into a relationship. He says, man, you don't need all this other water. I have the water that you can drink that will never cause you to be thirsty again. She's literally salivating at this point. Go, man, give me this water because the truth is about everybody who's ever been stuck in addiction, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. The cycle of falling into sin and then worrying about how you're going to get out of it and then confessing and hustling and repeating and exhaustion and back and forth, journaling, you name it. You go back to it. God, I'll never do it again. And then you find yourself doing it again and you last five years, 10 years, 20 years into it and then you stop asking because you go, man, I'm the biggest hypocrite. Why do you think the Bible tells us that his mercies are new every if God didn't know that we needed his mercies every single day. Some people get saved and they quit smoking. You've heard the stories. They smoked before salvation. They drank before salvation. They come to Christ. I grew up hearing these stories. Man, I never wanted to drink again, right? I grew up in a fundamentalist background, like where everything was like you couldn't even have pot back in those days. I'm just kidding. But, but, but. <laughs> But then there were others. It was like a daily struggle. Like, I don't know why. For some of you, you'll find freedom in a second. And for others of you, like me, it's a daily reliance on grace. It's a daily recognition of my inability to keep this flesh crucified. That it's a daily decision to trust that the water that Jesus offers is enough. But you know, there's a freedom in admitting that to God. One of our biggest problems as Christians is that we talk a lot about grace, but we don't really believe it. Uh, we believe it up to a certain degree, but there's certain sins that you know, I'm not sure grace is sufficient there and never towards us. Oh no, we'd rather walk on hot coals. We'd rather stand outside in negative 30 degree weather. We'd rather prove to God that we are good enough. Just give me another week. Here's my streak of how many good days I've had. Listen, Jesus died for you so that you don't have to do anything. 
You don't have to prove that you can be good enough, holy enough, unaddicted enough. He came to the woman at the well to show us the extent of his love for us. Does Jesus care about your love life? You tell me, within a minute of talking to this woman, he leaves discussion about theology, and he hits on the real problem, which is her heart. What is it that's driving you to your addictions? Here's a second thought. You will never overcome addiction until you admit the power that it has over you. The biggest power it has over us is the power of shame. Shame is powerful in that it keeps us hiding. The woman at the well was hiding at noon because she didn't want anyone else in the village. I mean, they were probably cruel to her, admittedly. I probably would have gone at noon, too, because I wouldn't want to be around. I don't like people on a good day. I'm deeply introverted. I know it doesn't seem this way, but I'm an introvert at heart. And so I can understand going at noon, but, but there's more going on here. She doesn't want to be faced up with all this stuff. It's called shame. It's called shame, that weird feeling when you don't want to tell anybody everything because you know the moment they know they're going to look at you differently. So you'd rather hide it. You'd rather let the wound fester. I, this happens in the ER all the time. One patient that comes to mind that is so, like, I can't stop thinking about her. In fact, I mentioned her in the book, but it was a patient that had came in for supposedly a rash, and it was like a Monday night. Super Monday nights are the busiest night in the pediatric ER for some reason. Schools start. You know, pediatricians are overwhelmed with, so everybody goes to the ER. And so I, I kept putting off seeing this patient, and the mom was so frustrated. She was like pace, pacing, you know, you know, when a pair, you know, somebody's pacing in front of their room. Like, it doesn't make the doctors go faster, but it's like it makes you nervous. Like, you're like, stop pacing. You guys are going, yeah, you pace all the time. I'm sorry, I'll try to stop. But, but this woman was pacing so heavily, and I knew that she was like, get in and see the patient. I'm thinking, like, she's here for a rash. My goodness, like, I don't think I need to hurry up when there's other kids dying in the other rooms. And so finally, like, it's like, 11.30 at night, I figure I need to go in. I go in, and I say, well, where's the rash? Let me see it. And she goes, oh, it's in my armpit. And I was like, well, why are you still in your clothes? You've been here for three hours waiting for me, and you're still in your clothes. Like, put this gown on. And so I turn around, waiting for her to put the gown on. She puts the gown on, and I, so, I come up to her, and I'm like, show me this rash. And she opens up her armpit, and literally there's a hole so deep I can put my fist in it. I'm sorry if your sensitivity is. I should have warned you. But I could literally put my fist into that hole. I was like, dude, that is not a rash. I don't even have a name for that. I looked at the mom. I go, did you know about this? You're pacing the hallway for her. She goes, I didn't know. She's never shown it to me before. She's like, I thought I smelled something funny. This was, this is the picture of shame. You're so afraid that if the doctor sees the rash, the parent sees the rash, that you're going to be shunned from humanity. Do you know that my response to that woman in that moment was deeper compassion? I had less compassion for a rash on a Monday night than I did this problem. I had more compassion because of her shame. And I'm a broken doctor who doesn't even like people. Think about God Almighty, who so loved the world that he gave up his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That son picks a day where he could have avoided Samaria, 
but he makes his way there at noon when he knows that woman is going to be there. Not to talk about theology, not to talk about Jacob's well, but to talk about her deep, deep need. And so he tells her, I have no, you're right in saying I have no, hus no husband. And the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's still trying to hide. And so he can, points to her again and lovingly brings her to the point of truth. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The last point is this, you will never you will never overcome addiction without Jesus. It's not possible. It's just not possible. You, you will wear yourself out trying to do it on your own. I, I know what you're thinking, because I, I, I've thought about it too. Well, there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus who are sitting through AA meetings, overcoming addiction. Look, look, here's my observation as a doctor in the ER, who I'm not bragging, but has seen over 150,000 patients since 2016, since I started working in telehealth, because we keep track on the computer, it's close to 160,000 now, 160,000 patients. If anybody knows humans, I'm probably in that group of people. I've talked to enough people, that's why I'm an introvert, that's why I don't want to talk to people anymore, I'm out-talked, right? But, but that's just since 2016, and I'm telling you guys, all we do humanly without Jesus is replace one addiction with another. One of the most best-selling books of a former Christian who, I, I guess she might describe herself as a continuing Christian, but, but she talks about shame and, and addiction. And if you read her story, all she's done is changed one addiction for another. We do it all the time. We do it in the Christian world. We give up one addiction that seems worse like, let's say, porn, and we substitute it with serving for Christ, working hard for Jesus. We join a church. We join a choir. We join a Sunday school. We do whatever it is that you still do in 2023. I guess Sunday school was a thing we used to have on Sundays. We don't have it anymore. I don't even know what we have now. I was going to say small groups, but even that has been eradicated after COVID. I don't even think people do anything anymore, but it's just part of our problem. We need it. This is why when we look at Asbury, we're like, oh my gosh, people are praying for two weeks. We used to do that every day. We used to go to church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was crazy. Like we had an ongoing Asbury when we were growing up, but now it's like, like it's an anomaly, but the reality is we're exhausted serving Jesus because we think that that addiction is better than this addiction when all Jesus says is drink of me. Jesus, you can sit in your room the rest of your life satisfied, content, complete in Christ. Happened to be reading in John chapter 7 today in my Bible reading plan and, and it's interesting because in John chapter, or I'm, John chapter 7 it was, yes, a little bit later on, I'm trying to remember where I read this afternoon actually it wasn't that long ago but Jesus repeats the same conversation in John 7 he says on the last day of the feast the great day Jesus stood up now not just to the Samaritan but to everybody because Jesus's message is not just for the sexually broken it's not just for those of us who are who, who can't, are addicted to something but it's for everybody so he stands up and he says if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water you know, my mind went to Jeremiah, and I'm wrapping up, by the way, worship team, you can probably come up. We're going to be closing here in a minute. In Jeremiah chapter 2, 
have to find the verse. I'm sorry, in Jeremiah. Yep, here it is. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. Jeremiah, by the way, was called the weeping prophet. Those of you who aspire to a life of ministry, I would imagine out of people who would come on a Monday night versus just a mandatory daytime, there's not that many of you here compared to this morning. So if you aspire for, uh, for a life in Christian service, Jeremiah is a great role model for you to study. In an era where everybody's about big platforms, best-selling books, celebrity this, celebrity that, the temptation is to think that only that work matters. Do you know what Jeremiah did? Do you know how many people he seemed to be influencing? The king hated him. He spent most of his life in a dungeon. Once he wrote a book, basically, and the king got it in his hand and burnt it. Imagine writing an entire book. God told him to write it, and then the guy burns it. He was known as the weeping prophet. And he was deeply called by God as a teenager in Jeremiah chapter 1. And then Jeremiah chapter 2, he writes this. He says, for my people, God was speaking through him, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Addiction is not a new problem. Our attempts to find satisfaction in everything but Jesus is an age-old problem. Eve tried it in the Garden of Eden, and she failed miserably. When Jesus revealed himself to the woman, do you know what her response was? It says, the woman said to him, well, I read that. Verse 27 says, just, just, when his, just then his disciples came back. Those disciples, like, didn't you want to break a moment, right? They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever, dis, uh, that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? To be known so deeply and loved so powerfully is freeing. The picture of the woman holding a water jug, trying to get her water from the well, and now she sees the living water. There's something very symbolic about that and reading it in parallel to Jeremiah. Every one of you has a jug that you're filling with something. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we just wrap this up here. I know you have school tomorrow and homework and papers and so my nephews tell me how hard college is as if I didn't know I spend more years in college than most people in a lifetime but, but but let's take a couple of minutes here and see what God might do as you even lean into the Lord now and just ask him God what am I filling my jug with where am I trying to find satisfaction every one of you as you reflect on this can fill in the gap is it your image? Is it likes and affirmation from others? Maybe it is alcohol or drugs. Maybe that's where you find your satisfaction. Maybe it is in working hard for Jesus and you're just so tired, but you don't know how to get out of that system. Listen, God didn't call us to a system. He called us to himself. Maybe it is sexual sin. Maybe it is pornography. Maybe it is a relationship that is so toxic and you just can't get out of it. You feel like you just aren't whole without that person and yet God is beckoning you. Man, it's hurting you. It's hurting you. 
Maybe it's your own sexual identity. I mean, you've started talking about that. Maybe you feel like it's your sexuality. Like, man, I, I, God couldn't have created me this way if he wanted. Like, and maybe that's what's in your bucket. And maybe, maybe the idea that we value sex above God in every way. We think, man, if I just, it can't possibly be that God would want us to give up our sexuality. Listen, he wants us to give up everything. Did you miss the memo? You have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer you who live. It is Christ who lives in you. If you have received Jesus, what is it that you're filling your jug with? If it's not Jesus, you will never find the joy that is yours in him. If you're looking for freedom, drop the jar. Let it go. The woman left it and ran back to the village. And here's the woman that nobody wanted to be with. And now they all came and he said, now we believe not because of what she told us. She being the woman who was married to five people who couldn't bear to be in the same place as the, as the villagers. They believe her because she says, I met a man who knows me so well and still loves me so much. Do you know Jesus? If you've never met Jesus, what if tonight would be that night? What if the thing that's keeping you from Jesus is the very thing that you're trying to fill your little jug with? What if tonight is the invitation for you to say, I'm dropping my jug? You know, I asked John earlier, do people come up here and pray at this altar? And he says, yeah, actually, sometimes they do. And I love the image of the altar. I think about my own life and how many times in my life I took a turn in the road because of a moment at the altar. Honestly, I don't think I'd be here speaking these things to you if I, I can take you back to my life and mark the times when I've come up here and leaned, kneeled, wept and said, God, I, I know, I know what you're calling me to. I don't know how I could do it, but I want to do it. And I'm here. And, and over the years, I've been tempted to think if I've failed in some of those areas, like, God, are you even going to take me seriously right now? And God's like, listen, today is a day of salvation. Today, mercies are new. Every morning, the past is behind you. Today's a fresh start. You go, but what if I fail tomorrow? Does that make me a hypocrite? Listen, we're all going to fail in some way. We know that already. That's why we need Jesus. You're coming to the altars, not saying, man, I'm never going to do this again. It just means, God, I'm going to try not to, and I need you. And I need people in my life, and I need the spirit in me, and I need, I need everything. I, I need all the help that I can get in this journey until I see you face-to-face -face someday. That's all it is when you come to the altar. But it's a decision, a line in the sand of saying, God, here's my jug. I can't carry it anymore. As they sing in a moment, I'm going to urge you, if you feel compelled, listen, I, I, I want to just also lovingly say, like, don't, if you're not coming forward, don't assume what other person's sin is. We're so good at that in the church. Ooh, she talked about sex. Ooh, look at the people who are struggling with porn. Listen, I'm first in line at this altar because I see, listen, a slew of non-sexual ways that I try to find sex satisfaction in my life, and it fails over and over and over again. Look to you, your heart, what Jesus is doing in you. If the Spirit is working in you, use the altar as we sing. Just to lay before God and say, God, I need you.
I, I don't even know what it means to drink from you. I mean, seriously, like, I don't know fully what that means, but I want it. I want you, Jesus, and God, even as I pray now, I ask you that you would do the work that we cannot do, that I cannot do. I've seen you do it in my life. God, I've seen you watch those holes in my body that I've tried to hide from you. And I've seen you lovingly draw near to me in the places where I felt disgusted with myself. And God, it has only made me want you more. And so God, I ask now for a spirit of revival, really. God, I ask for a spirit of repentance. God, I ask for a deeper understanding of what this water that you're offering us is. And God, in the places where we don't know, we just offer you our ignorance. God, we offer you our brokenness, our certainty to fail again. God, the truth is we will fail, but God, we are also trusting you to do a transformative work in us that we can't even plan for. God, in our planning minds, we just want a list of what we can do to make it better, but God, you don't want us to plan it. You're in charge. This is your body. These are your hands. This is your brain. God, to someone who doesn't believe you, it sounds so ludicrous, and yet it is the deepest conviction of my heart. God, I know this like I know the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning, that your word is true, that your spirit is alive and active in us, that you are love, and that there's nothing you won't do to draw us back to you. So do your work today, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Bethel University Chapel Podcast. Subscribe to the podcast and get more information at chapel.betheluniversity.edu or check us out on the iTunes Store by searching for Bethel University Chapel.